You have discovered season 3 of The 542 and the Blue Podcast. A podcast on law enforcement history, issues and incidents in the Appalachian Mountains and beyond. Hosted by Scott Lunsford, retired police detective sergeant, author and researcher. Scott, we are recording. Your microphone is now on. 3, 2, 1. Welcome to 542 in the Blue podcast, talking about issues related to law enforcement and other topics along those lines in the Western North Carolina, Appalachian Mountains, and beyond. Victoria started us out. Thank you, Victoria. She's got us some great new equipment here that seems to be functioning fantastically for us. Today, we're going to talk about connections. It's one of the things that make the world interesting, don't you think? Criminal investigators, a lot of times, are just simply connectors. They connect people to times, location, and other people. Connecting the dots, so to speak. Now, today's Shade of Blue story has an unusual connection. Murder, or several murders, and the assassination of a head of state the head of state of Sweden connected to a small community in North Carolina. February 28, 1986, I had been sworn in for a short period of time by Sheriff Dedrick Brown as a law enforcement officer in North Carolina. But let's move to another country, but the same time. Now, the Prime Minister of Sweden, Mr. Olaf Palmi. He tried to keep as ordinary a life as possible, from what I understand, in reading and doing research on him. He would often go out without making arrangements for any type of security protection. One night, walking home from the Grand Cinema with his wife on a Stockholm street, the minister and his wife were attacked by a lone gunman. The prime minister was shot in the back at close range a little bit before midnight on the night of February 28th, 1986. A second shot wounded his wife. There were several people who witnessed the couple's walk towards the train station and reported so to investigators. They also commented on the obvious lack of bodyguards. Now after the movie, the couple and two of their friends stayed outside the theater for a while and talked but then separated to go home right before midnight, like I said. Olaf and his wife headed south on the west side of the street towards the northern entrance of the metro station. They stopped a moment to window shop, then continued on. Before midnight, this man appeared from behind, shot the minister point blank, fired one more shot at his wife, and then the assassin ran down the street, up a set of steps to another street, and continued on until he disappeared. The only forensic leads that were left by the assassin were the two bullets. They were identified as Winchester Western 357 150 grain metal piercing rounds, a little unusual. Deducing that the weapon was a revolver, which as you know does not automatically eject cartridge cases, There were no cases to recover for ballistic examination. 
only the two partial bullets that were recovered from the victims and from the street. And these were not complete bullets, they were bullet fragments. Due to that fact, and the lack of individual characteristics, investigators concluded that they had been fired from a four-inch revolver, and they figured most likely a Smith & Wesson 357. Now, throughout the investigation, the Swedish police test fired approximately 500 Magnum revolvers looking for this one particular weapon. The investigation placed particular emphasis on tracking down 10 specific Smith & Wesson revolvers that were reported stolen at the time of the murder. Out of all of these, all were located except one, and the media referred to that as the Suxdorf revolver. It was a pistol stolen from the Swedish filmmaker Arne Suxdorf in 1977, 10 years before the assassination. Now, the person who stole the weapon was an acquaintance of a infamous drug dealer by the name of Sergi Cedardren. And I apologize for the probable mispronunciations of these last names. And he claimed on his deathbed that he had loaned the 357 revolver to someone two months prior to the assassination. Now another weapon that figured prominently in the investigation was a, another specific Smith & Wesson Model 28. Uh, it was actually the highway patrolman version and it had been originally bought by a civilian legally begun along with 91 armor type metal piercing bullets had been stolen in a burglary in 1983 three years before the crime and it's believed to have been used in the robbery of a post office that same year analysis of a bullet fired during the robbery confirmed it to have the same composition as the bullets retrieved from the assassination crime scene, verifying the bullets were at the very least manufactured at the same time. Now, in the fall of 2006, they actually recovered this weapon. It had been thrown into a lake, and the gun was determined to be the same one used in the post office robbery, but it really couldn't be connected to the assassination. More than 25 people came forward and spoke to investigators and the police. The killer was described by one witness as a man between 30 and 50 years of age, 6 feet or more, wearing a dark jacket or a coat. Many described him as having walked with a limp or otherwise in an unusual or clumsy gant. Now, other witnesses described the movement of the killer as being smooth and efficient and powerful. No witness was in a position to observe the killer's actual appearance in any detail. Police sketch of the supposed killer was circulated in the media, and it turned up a few hits. Now, several suspects were developed in the assassination. Many were taken into custody. One subject in particular, a Swedish extremist by the name of Victor Gunnarsson. He was called in the media and the press at that time as the 33-year-old suspect. He was soon arrested for the murder and assassination. 
but released after dispute between police and prosecuting attorneys. Gunnarsson had connections to various extremist groups, among them the European Workers' Party, the Swedish branch of the La Roche movement, and other organizations that made him appear suspicious to them. The investigation also found that he had in his possession a lot of pamphlets and documentation that spoke against the Prime Minister and they were found at his home outside of Stockholm. But just because you don't like a guy doesn't necessarily mean you killed him and shot his wife. Therefore, the charges were dropped after about eight days after his arrest. He remained under suspicion in the assassination for quite some time. The killing of the Prime Minister remains unsolved. The police investigation does continue, but it has kind of stagnated. Now, Gunnarsson suffered protracted harassment because of his status as a suspect, and deciding he had to get out of Dodge, so to speak, he decided he needed to immigrate to the United States, which is what he did. Okay, now let's move our story once more. New time and new location. Watauga County in the mountains of western North Carolina. Victor Gunnarsson moved into and began living in Salisbury, North Carolina in the early 1990s. Gunnarsson sometimes told uh, girlfriends and acquaintances that he was an FBI agent or a film director capable of turning actresses into stars and apparently he used that as a pickup line. In reality, he worked as a language tutor. He lived in a rental unit in Lakewood Apartments in Salisbury, North Carolina and ended up in a relationship with a school teacher in that same city named Sandra K. Whedon. Now at one point Sandra told police that she had been dating Gunnarsson for a few weeks when suddenly she hadn't heard from him since December 3rd when he had taken her out to dinner and then brought her home. Police took a missing person report and distributed information on Mr. Gunnarsson as was typical in a missing person investigation. At this point there was no indication that Victor was in danger or had done anything other than stop contact with a new girlfriend. And that's not that unusual at times. Not unusual I say until Gunnarsson's naked body was found in a wooded area called Deep Gap near the Blue Ridge Parkway in Watauga County, about 86 miles from his apartment in Salisbury. He had been shot twice in the head with a 22 caliber firearm. The medical examiner put the date about the 3rd or 4th of December 1993. Investigators linked the body to the missing person report and a murder investigation begun. Now once it was discovered who Victor was and his past history of dealing with investigators in Sweden as a possible murder suspect or assassination of the Prime Minister, one of the things that investigators wondered was 
was he killed in a plot related to the assassination of the Prime Minister, which had occurred several years previously. As a lot of cops and detectives will tell you, in most times the truth was actually quite more simple. Kay Whedon told detectives that on her last date with Gunnarsson, a car driven by her jealous ex-fiance, Lamont Underwood, had cruised by her house to spy on the couple who were sitting outside. Now the investigation began to look closer at the ex-boyfriend. Underwood just happened to also be a former cop. He had been in law enforcement for over 19 years and had worked for the Salisbury Police Department. He had also worked in Lincoln County, North Carolina, Newton, and North Wilkesboro. Lamont C. Underwood, as his full name was, was the obsessive ex-fiance of Kay Whedon. Whedon had broken off her engagement to Underwood and had started seeing Victor. Now, during the investigation, a lady friend of Underwood's told detectives that while she had been with Underwood once, he had written down a tag number from a vehicle parked in front of his ex-girlfriend's house as they drove by, and he had used a friend who worked at the Salisbury Police Department to run the tag and get the information on the owner of the car. Now, running a vehicle tag, you see it done on TV all the time by TV cops and TV detectives. It's not necessarily that simple. NCIC or the National Crime Information Center along with motor vehicle information is restricted in the United States. In order to have access to this information, a law enforcement officer must have a valid reason to request it. And this information possibly related to an ongoing investigation. The requests are also logged in and recorded so it really didn't take long for the investigators to determine that Underwood had a friend of his run the vehicle information and provided to him who that friend was and what the information was. Detectives thought Underwood was jealous of Gunnarsson, seeing him as a romantic rival for Miss Whedon, Underwood's former fiance. Now, Underwood stalked and spied on and harassed Whedon, his ex. There was also documentation showing Underwood had done this to other previous romantic interests. And this wasn't his first rodeo. Now, this was not the only shock his former girlfriend, Whedon, received at that time. It's bad enough when your missing boyfriend is found murdered and naked up in the mountains. But her 78-year-old mother... Catherine Miller was also found dead in her kitchen, shot twice in the head, all about the same time Gunnarsson disappeared, and also shot with a 22. There was no signs of forced entry in the home, which indicated that the victim probably knew her killer. And this occurred also about several days after Underwood had confronted his ex-fiance and her mother while they were eating together in a local restaurant and created a bit of a scene. Now the local police had two homicides to figure out. Investigators discovered that according to friends of the daughter, her mother disapproved of her daughter's relationship with Underwood, possibly one of the reasons that she had broken it off. 
Detectives were able to develop probable cause and he was charged in 1996, three years after the homicide occurred, with first-degree kidnapping and first-degree murder in the December 1993 incident. Later, he was additionally charged with the murder of the mother as well. The motive for both murders, of course, Underwood's desire to cause as much suffering for his ex-girlfriend in retaliation for her breaking up with him. Now, Underwood ended up being convicted of murder in 1997 and sentenced to life imprisonment for 40 years. Now, there were several incidents that occurred in the trial and the investigation that made impacts on how some cases are investigated and prosecuted in the state of North Carolina and a few other states. In this particular case, prosecutors had successfully blocked a search warrant that had been issued in the investigation from public view for over 10 months. Normally, that's public record. But Superior Court Judge Forrest Fernell, after a suit was filed by the media, 10 months later, did unseal the document at the request of the Salisbury Post, the Watauga Democrat, and the Charlotte Observer, as well as the North Carolina Press Association and the North Carolina Association of Broadcasters. Another issue that came up when Underwood's convictions were appealed, it opened up the investigation into the trial and the investigation itself for a very detailed review. The North Carolina Court of Appeals upheld the conviction for murder and in its ruling, the court gave its first approval to a new kind of DNA testing that would help investigators solve cases where conventional genetic tests didn't work. The case paves the way for its use in the future as evidence. According to Don Hobart, the legal counsel to the North Carolina Attorney General at the time, Mike Easley, the North Carolina Supreme Court also approved the new DNA test at that time partially based on the Underwood investigation and trial, saying it could help juries make correct decisions. Underwood's investigators had found scratch marks and an apparent footprint inside the trunk of Underwood's car. On the trunk mat, they also found some hairs, the only physical evidence linking him to the victim. An FBI expert compared DNA from the hair to DNA extracted from Gunnarsson's blood, and they were identical. This new process at the time was unusual and had to be proved that it was valid. Now today, because of this particular court case, or one of the reasons was because of this court case, it is a very common form of investigation. In another appeal that was made, going up to January 2010, just 10 years ago, a judge sitting in the U.S. District Court for the Western District of North Carolina ruled that Underwood had suffered from an ineffective counsel. Not to be held back, Underwood kept his appeal process up. 
filing appeals and filing appeals until finally in January 2010, just 10 years ago from when I'm making this, a judge sitting in the U.S. District Court for the Western District of North Carolina ruled that Underwood had suffered from ineffective counsel and ordered that he be granted a new trial or be released from prison in 180 days. Now, that could be a big deal. The decision, though, on a second appeal by the state was overturned, and the new trial ended up being denied by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth District Court in January 2011. The appeals court ruled that even if Underwood's lawyers had been ineffective as he claimed and as stupid as he claimed, the evidence against him was so overwhelming that his counsel's alleged lack of competence would have been immaterial and he would have still been found guilty. Now even later, members of the North Carolina Innocence Project took up the case for review. Now the North Carolina Innocence Project has done some great things as far as looking at cases and bringing up new evidence and getting people that have been tried may not have been guilty of the offense they were tried for, getting them out of prison. And we've talked about a few of those cases in our podcast. Now, while Underwood was incarcerated in Marion Correctional Institute, he even built a website that explained how he had been framed and set up by local police and the FBI as a fall guy. Now, this also going back to Victor's involvement in Sweden and the assassination of the prime minister. He claimed that it was a big cover-up. He was the fall guy for the killer who had killed the prime minister. Mm. Conspiracies. Now, all this information is floating around. He keeps posting it on websites. He keeps trying to get more attention to it. Now, the Innocent Project, apparently after a review of all the facts dropped their possible support for Underwood and any further appeals and court hearings. Now, Underwood himself, while still in the custody of North Carolina Department of Corrections and still claiming he had been framed, passed away and died in the custody of the Department of Corrections on December 23, 2018. The assassination of the Prime Minister of Sweden ended up indirectly being connected to the use of modern DNA evidence gathered and being determined that it's completely valid and reliable as evidence. Connections. They make the world go round. Well, that's our story for 542 and the Blue for this week. I hope you found it interesting. Look at some of the connections in your world. I'm sure there are things that If you think about it, we're all connected somehow. If you would like more information on this podcast or on my books and my writings and and other research I have done, you can go to my website, scottlunsfordauthor.com. There you can find copies of my books and links to podcasts and uh, listings of the previous podcasts we we have done. 
and some other research that is out there. You can also reach me by the contact page of the website, and I'd be happy to hear from you. In the meantime, in the meantime, be safe and be secure. And if you have the opportunity, try to do something nice for somebody. It'll make you feel good, and it'll help somebody else out. And both of those things are great connections. Victoria, go ahead and take us away and close us out. Thank you, Scott. In an update to this Shade of Blue story, it was announced in June of 2020, the 30-year investigation into the assassination of Swedish Prime Minister Olof Palmer has been closed. Sweden's chief prosecutor Krista Peterson announced in Stockholm, the investigation is closed because the main suspect, Stig Engström, died in 2000. Peterson is quoted saying, Stig Engström is deceased, and therefore I am not able to start proceedings or even interview him, that is why I decided to discontinue the investigation, Peterson stated further. Since he has died, I cannot indict him. Hans Melander, head of the Swedish investigation, said that over 10,000 people had been questioned during the 34-year investigation of the murder. Confusing matters. 134 people had confessed to the murder. 29 confessing directly to police. If you would like more information on other podcasts for 542 and the Blue and Scott's books go to scottlunsfordauthor.com. Scott can be contacted through the contact page there. This is Victoria your producer. Thank you for listening.